Hello and welcome to another episode of Downtime with the Cranston Public Library. We're a podcast for cool people who love libraries where we talk about what we've been reading, what we've been watching, and what we've been loving. I'm your host, Taylor, a branch librarian at the Oakland Branch Library, and my pronouns are she, her. I'm Martha Boxenbaum. I'm the Youth Services Librarian at the Auburn Branch of the Cranston Public Library, and my pronouns are she, her. I'm Rachel Bryan, uh, animator and children's author of Consent for Kids and the Worry Less book, and my pronouns are she, her, or they, them. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Uh, we're very excited to have you because later we're going to talk about your book, specifically Consent for Kids. Um, but before we get into talking about your book, let's talk a little bit about the books that you've been enjoying. All right. Um, I've been reading mostly nonfiction, actually. My books are nonfiction, too, so maybe that makes sense. A couple of months ago, I read Eloquent Rage by Brittany Cooper, which is kind of a cool book that's sort of an intersectional feminist and race-oriented book, and she's super smart and interesting, and I just, it made me think a lot about some of the work that I'm doing and, um, kind of social justice stuff, so I really liked that. Um, I think, uh... The Water Dancer is the re most recent fiction that um, that I read, the Tanahasi Coats, and that was also like just super beautiful. And there's probably more, but <laughs> no, that sounds like I feel like a lot of us are reading books kind of of that ilk to mm -hmm. uh, to help us sort out all the things that are going on in the world right now and and get our bearings and learn more about things. The last couple of weeks, I feel like I just read a lot of like New York Times op-eds <laughs> because I'm trying to like make sense of some of the, you know, intense things going on. Um, there was a really good Brent Staples op-ed the other day about, you know, the capital uh, situation and talking about the historical basis for that having been that kind of thing going on for the whole time. <laughs> So I thought it was interesting because it wasn't just like, this isn't who we are. We're a democracy. We would never do something like this. This is so out of character and really thinking about like, is it really out of character? Because it's like, here are all of these other incidences where um, people of color have been disenfranchised and their votes have been discounted through violence and essentially mob rule. And, it, you know, there was one in the 1800s and there was, you know, the Tulsa massacre. And so it kind of goes through all of these ways in which it's, um, not different and not to not to feel bad about, but just to recognize that that is some of what we need to work on instead of just saying like, that's nothing to do with us. Yeah, I think if we continue to act shocked about these things and, and act like this is separate from America's identity, then we're not moving towards fixing the problem or progress. Yeah, I agree. Not to get super heavy on this usually lighthearted show. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but I think it's unavoidable given when we're recording for context people we're recording this on January 11th so the things that took place in the Capitol happened a couple of days ago and and I don't think we necessarily should ease away from it because these are important conversations to have it's all still fresh on our minds even if this comes out a week from now so Martha I know you were on last week, so I don't know if you have any new books you want to talk about. You could also dig into your backlog of, of book recommendations if you'd like. Well, I have also been reading a lot of very heavy stuff, um, you know, a lot of social justice, a lot of stuff about race and politics and all of that. Um, but to balance it out, 
I actually do have a more lighthearted, absurdist suggestion that I just finished reading. Um, I just read Solutions and Other Problems by Ali Brosh. And um, some of you may be familiar with her. She wrote Hyperbole and a Half. Um, she's famous for very strange-looking drawings, um, which is right down my aisle. That's exactly where I like to go. It's super thick. It's the largest graphic novel I've read in a while. But I read it in like a day. And it is not a collection of comics. It is a graphic novel that's like an extended story. It was very interesting because it was sort of a memoir, um, which a lot of her stuff does touch on her own life. Um, but it was less about dogs being ridiculous, which I love her stuff about dogs being ridiculous. But it also just talked a lot about her childhood and the strangeness of just what it is to be human. So like just being a human being is such a strange experience. And so it points out a lot of everyday things um, about that sort of thing. But it does also get a little bit deeper. It does touch on some of her own, you know, life problems, um, which I think balances it out really nicely. It gives it some substance while you're also reading this, like, absolutely hilarious, ridiculous story. And, and her illustrations are, you can only describe them as absurd. They're basically six figures made to look as ridiculous as possible. So um, I enjoyed it a great deal. I know it's been getting a lot of really positive press. I'm so excited. I didn't even know she had a new one out. I love Hyperbole and a Half, but that is like, I'm writing it down like, it's out. Well, if you place a hold on it right now, there aren't a million people in line. You should be able to get a hold of it. Of course, maybe in a week or two, once people have heard this podcast, things will be different. So well, place your hold now. <laughs> I'll read it quick and get it back in. I would like to think that we influence the lists of the Rhode Island libraries. I see things like come in and someone had recently talked about it on the podcast. And I like have a moment where I'm like, hmm, did this person take this out because they listened to the podcast? Or is this just a major coincidence? I'll never know. But I'd like to think that it was us. You're a Rhode Island influencer. You gotta just own it. <laughs> Try to be better about owning it. If there isn't any more books that either of you wants to talk about, we can move into TV and movies and other things that we put our eyes on. All right. Well, I have a, a silly one because I was a little heavy on the book side. I have the most absurd, silliest show, um, which I highly recommend for pandemic viewing, uh, called Taskmaster. It's Greg Davies. He's a comic and he's the Taskmaster and then the contestants, it's a game show, the contestants are also all comics. It's British, so the humor is very dry. It's very low budget. And the basic premise is that they come on and then they, they have to do these ridiculous tasks and they've been filmed beforehand doing them. And then they review the tapes of them in the show and Greg Davies makes fun of them and assigns points kind of at random based on whatever he feels like. And it's very entertaining and there are all kinds of ridiculous things like they just walk into a small room and they have to read like a thing and it's like there's a watermelon on the table eat as much as you can in one minute your time starts now but it's like a whole watermelon and they're trying to figure out like how to open it and like what what to eat it with it's so so silly and it, it never fails to entertain go tackle yeah it sounds a little bit like Who's line for the point that the points are arbitrary, but then like meets like sportscasters reviewing instant replay tape? Yeah. And they often but, come up with like sort of creative ways to get around the rules. And so Greg Davies has to be like either like it was brilliant, five points, or like, no, you cheated. You're you're out. <laughs> no, that doesn't count. 
but and one of them was things like how far can you get from this spot while making a continuous noise <laughs> like, so they're just all screaming as loud and just running and screaming like it's really very fun well that definitely sounds like what a lot of people would need right now fun. again martha do you have anything do you have anything to add from last week's recommendation i feel like our listeners are going to be like all right martha get off this is enough <laughs> Uh, my favorite comfort watch is always a Miyazaki movie or a Studio Ghibli movie. So last night we watched Princess Mononoke. And if anybody's watched any um, films that he's written or directed, they're often very environmentally focused. But I would argue that this is the most environmentally focused one because it's literally about the gods of nature. And in this movie, they're depicted as animals. Um, and humans coming in to start industrialization and basically killing off the forest spirit. And so um, it's a really beautiful movie, as all of the Miyazaki movies are. Even though a lot of really, like, intense stuff happens in that movie, I find it really comforting to watch just the beauty and the reminder of everything that we do in this world has a consequence. And it did make me feel a little bit better about the world that day. Yeah, I'm super behind on the Ghibli movies. I really need to. I've seen like three of them, I think. I have well, to like think about little it. Plug, all of them are at Auburn, pretty much. Like, pretty much any Studio Ghibli or Miyazaki movie that you could want is there. And it's not just because I've put a mind to buying them. My predecessor also seems to be really into Studio Ghibli. I feel like as a creator, he just made so many different like stories. Like even people I think who aren't into anime still like Ghibli movies. It's just it's just something that it's like I don't want to say it's like a safe bet, but it's like it's it's a good it's a good bet of purchasing that people are probably going to enjoy them and want to take them home because they're just. You let, like for all the reasons you said they're beautiful they are beautifully written stories they are there's just like this kind of soft comfortable vibe to most of them uh if not all of them so i think so you you and your predecessor were like yes good investments to our collection um i actually have something that i started watching last week we finished off the first season this weekend which is the umbrella academy i know i'm like super late to the party on this but like what else is new it very much has like a watchman vibe to me like the the movie slash the comic i don't know much about the new hbo show because i haven't gotten around to watching it but like the original watchman and this idea that like having superpowers doesn't always lead to you being a hero and like a well-adjusted person like having superpowers like in actuality would probably lead to you being a person full of a lot of unresolved trauma so i think it's interesting especially as someone who i love superhero stories to have something that kind of like comments on genre and has something a little bit different than your captain america or your your avengers movie um was definitely a nice change of pace. We made it through the whole first season. We watched the first episode of the second season last night because that's all we had time for. And I'm like very excited to find out what happened in the second season and how they saved the world. I was, I was trying to remember there was a superhero movie and I can't remember what it's called, but it has the word colors in it that's like about a young girl who has superhero power that's also super different than your traditional, um, your traditional kind of like, you know, 
Captain America type superhero. I feel like it's called like streaming colors or something. It's about this girl and she can kind of like dissolve and reappear elsewhere. I mean, it deals with a lot of like social justice themes and sort of uh, race issues, but also um, police stuff. And it's also like a really quiet movie in a certain kind of way. So it's like, it's really, yeah, it's quite lovely. Okay, sorry, because the thing about color, I was like, had a fast color, yes. It's called fast color. What I love is to watch all of the librarian senses tingling when you're describing this movie. Like, I'm starting to, like, want to go search the internet, and Taylor's, like, trying to figure it out. Of course, like, we're just like, we got to figure out what she's talking about. Librarian, assemble! See, you guys are really the real superheroes. You should have, like, your own librarian superhero show. That would be so cool. Yeah, of course the problem is is that they have tried to do that once or twice. Like, if you describe it, like, oh, we did this and this and we saved the day, like, it can sound exciting. But actually doing a movie about librarians doing research is going to be a lot of, like, watching them stare at a screen or, like, pull books out of the shelf. And I do feel like the show The Librarians, I got super excited about it because it kind of was like that. But they just turned librarians' skills into magic. And they were like, I just magically know that information. So I think the reality is that, you know, people have tried, but they have failed. <laughs> it would be a quiet movie and only for a select audience, but I still would see it. <laughs> I'm just imagining a movie that the whole movie is like a research montage. <laughs> I don't know why. Like, the whole movie is just, like, and then we go to the library, and then it's, like, music plays. is like, we're looking at books. We're at the computer terminal. <laughs> I don't know why. Interspersed with, like, dramatic, emotional, like, aha moments. We're just like, oh, you know, they as they read chapter one, and they recognize this is really the, the good stuff. Of course, I'm imagining the sloth from Zootopia, who's just, like, very slowly like turning a page and reading the page so like imagine the sloth from zootopia trying to read a book well if we if we've intrigued any hollywood screenwriters please credit us and we'll return to the show after a quick break downsizing, prioritizing tasks, or freeing up time for a better work-life balance? Join presenter Ronnie Eisenberg on Tuesday, February 2nd at 6.30 p.m. to learn practical solutions that will motivate you and leave you wondering, now, why didn't I think of that? This event is free and open to the public. Visit cranstonlibrary.org slash clearing dash clutter for more information and to register or contact the library at 401-943-9080 for assistance. Looking for another way to keep up with what's going on at the Cranston Public Library? Sign up for our email newsletter. You'll be among the first to learn about upcoming programs for kids, teens, and adults, and new services and collections coming to your library. Subscribe at cranstonlibrary.org. Without further ado, let's talk, Rachel, about your book, um, Consent for Kids, Boundaries, Respect, and Being in Charge of You. Uh, so first off, do you want to talk a little bit about Devout? Sure. For people who don't know. Yeah, it's um, so it's a book for kids, kind of like in 
you know, eight to early teen kind of area, like 11 or so, uh, about uh, basically about what it says about consent and about boundary setting. And I think, um, you know, both in terms of like, from a perspective of the kid themselves setting boundaries, but also from the perspective of really listening to other people when other people are setting boundaries. So it's, it's both to that coin. Part of why this is such an important conversation is because as a culture, America is very like, not good at observing people's boundaries. I thought it was really great how your book not only touched on empowering children to set their own boundaries and be in charge of their own selves and being empowered to give and revoke consent, but also active listening and really being aware of other people and their boundaries and having an awareness that you don't want cross other people's boundaries, just like you don't want your boundaries to be crossed. And I think when you look at how many kids experience boundary crossings of various kinds, it's important not to, you know, I think in the olden times of 10 years ago or whatever, consent stuff was more about, you know, stranger danger and don't talk to people and private parts. And it was all kind of about like setting what the boundary was for the kid and being like, it's okay to trust people you know, but it's not okay to trust people you don't know instead of, you know, letting a kid um, figure out what they're okay with because not all, you know, First of all, people who know kids cross their boundaries all the time. It's super common. And then the other thing is that what actually is a boundary being crossed really depends on the person. And so like I, I have one friend in New York. She is the huggiest person on earth. If she met you today, she would just hug you up and just probably not because of COVID. But in the before time, she would hug everyone. She would like, oh, this is my plumber. Oh my God, I want to hug you. You know, she's just like a super huggy person. And then I have another friend who does not hug, like there's no hugging involved. And it's just not a thing. And that's totally fine. And so I think, you know, being able to articulate that uh, so that people can be comfortable. And also, you know, part of it is for kids learning to respect that people can be different and have those different boundaries. And it's not like you don't need to make fun of someone or keep them out because they have a different kind of set of boundaries than you. One, one thing that was interesting is, uh, so the book has been released in Japan and it's doing really well there. And um, I think it's like their number one illustrated children's book at the moment, which was kind of exciting. And um, I did an interview with the publisher and she was like, well, in America, you guys must just be really great at like setting boundaries because we're actually really terrible about it. It's kind of like, it's rude to say no. And so nobody ever really wants to do it. And I was kind of like, no, we're actually also terrible. I mean, even though we're so, we cross everyone's boundaries all the time. We also, I think culturally aren't particularly good at straightforward communication about things that are so culturally and socially difficult. Like actually, you know, that's not for me. Like, I don't want to do that. And, uh, and so I think, you know, um, you know, part of the book too is like, even if you aren't, even though you want to practice that whole boundary setting process, if you can't do it, and some people really struggle with that, it is still not your fault if somebody crosses your boundaries because you really do need to consent enthusiastically in order for that to be okay. And so, you know, the fact that you didn't, you know, I think that's like such an issue with like Me Too era stuff is like, if there isn't like a, uh, you know, why didn't this person... I don't punch you in the face or go crazy or whatever. Well, you know, it's fight or flight, but it's also freeze. And a lot of people do freeze in situations where they're made uncomfortable and recognizing that in other people, but also in ourselves means that we don't have to take blame for when we weren't able to um, set that boundary. So 
that you know things are true. Well, I have to say my favorite part about this book is that it's written for kids and that it's written for kids in a format that they're going to be excited about and enjoy. Um, I think having a graphic novel e type of format really makes it easy to express some of these things that are hard to talk about in words, and especially, you know, adult words that kids might not be familiar with yet. Um, and, the, and the thing that I see a lot as a services librarian is books for adults about how to teach their kids consent. And while those books are valuable, and I think obviously they need to be written, I really appreciate a book that is aimed directly at children telling them how to deal with the situations in their everyday life that they're actually going to be experiencing and not having it be this abstract kind of like ideological discussion about whether or not people should have the ability to cross other people's boundaries, right? That's not the discussion. So I really appreciate this book and I'm really excited about, you know, your other book too, because I, I think kids will feel empowered through their ability to read about something and do something about it on their own. And so a kid can learn about this without an adult. And I think that's wonderful. Before the book was written, I have a video called Consent for Kids also that kind of made its way around globally. And, um, you know, as an animator, like one of the things that my studio is known for is just being a bit silly about things that are kind of like difficult topics. Um, you know, without being non-respectful. And I think one of the things that was fun about writing the book was coming up with scenarios or ideas that kind of illustrate points that were also really silly. I really don't like those preachy type things that are like, Billy was a little boy and this is what you should do. You know, and it's like a whole moral, you know, play on whatever. Like, I just, that's just not my jam. So I feel like kids should go and it should be super straightforward and just silly and fun. You're like, oh yeah, sometimes people might cross your boundary and that is their fault. Okay. And, you know, moving on. I think the underlying ideas are ones that don't get across. And I, I don't know if you know that the genesis of the video was this incident that had occurred. So my studio is most well known for the video T consent, which is many people have seen. And shortly after that video came out and it kind of had its viral moment, my daughter came home from first grade and she looked really glum. And, uh, you know, I asked her like what had happened. She didn't really want to talk about it. She was so down. And um, eventually she said, mom, you know, some, some kid kissed me today. And I was like, you know, basically was that like welcome? Was that something that you wanted to happen? And she was like, no, this, I'm not even friends with this person. And I was so upset and it was really just so mean and terrible. And, and I said, well, did you tell the teacher? And she said, no, I was really embarrassed. And I just put my head down. I wish the day would be over and I never want to go back to school again. And I said, well, did you tell the kid, like, I don't like that. And she was like, no, I was just surprised. You know, I just, she didn't really know what to do about the whole thing. And she was embarrassed also. So that night I, I said, okay, well, let me email the teacher. And I emailed her. I said, hey, like, I know you don't know this, that this went on, but I just want to let you know this situation occurred. And, you know, uh, my daughter's feeling pretty upset about it. And like, maybe this might be the time to like have more conversation about consent in the classroom and whatever. And I got a, an email back from the first grade teacher that was like, thank you for bringing this to my attention. This is unacceptable. There's no touching in first grade, no touching at all. That child's mother will get an email immediately and they'll be in big trouble. 
And I thought, oh my God, that's terrible because, <laughs> you know, what, first of all, they're seven years old. Like this is, you know, this is a perfect teachable opportunity to really talk about people's boundaries and, and why this might be upsetting to someone and all of the things. And instead, it just ended up being kind of like a clamp down across the board. And it's like, well, what do you mean no touching in first grade? Like, can best friends hold hands? Can you hug a person that you like? It was just kind of like this ridiculous sort of what I would consider puritanical reaction, um, followed by blaming the mother always. Like, why is it always the mother's fault? It's like, she didn't do it. <laughs> I mean, maybe like your job as an educator is to really think about really direct and clear conversations with kids about how to interact with each other in ways that are respectful and ways that allow people the opportunity to consent uh, and to revoke consent and all those things, because those things come up a thousand times a day. I mean, if you have more than one kid, I have three kids, but if you have more than one kid, like consent conversations are happening all the time, obviously not around like sexual things, but around like, that's my toy and I'm grabbing it from you. And like, when is it okay to put your hands on somebody? And when is, you know, not. And allowing people to have personal space and choices about how they interact. I feel like those conversations start as kids and they continue your whole life. Like that never, never ends. Most schools begin doing consent education in high school or even college. And that is just way too late. Like it's way too late. A lot of bad stuff already happened. And there's a lot of bad ideas that have been inculcated prior to that. So yeah, that was sort of the genesis of it. That's a really good point is that we talk a lot about consent around the college age. And you're right, it is so late to be doing that because we develop all of our socialization and our ideas about the world when we are kids. And if you teach kids now about things that are going to happen in their everyday life, when they get older, if you introduce the idea of consent in college, they're already going to understand, even if they don't necessarily know what you're talking about or don't have the words, they will already have a fundamental understanding of you don't somebody's boundaries. So I, I think that's fantastic. And I think just even the idea that your body is your own is a relatively new to kids concept in terms of culturally, you know, because it's all like, go kiss Aunt Gladys, do the thing. I'm the parent. I can make you do what I want. And it's not to say uh, that parents, you know, again, mom here. So it's not like I don't, you know, get my kids to do things, but recognizing like which kinds of things are important as a parent for safety or for education or other things and which kinds of things are, you know, maybe are invasive and like kids could decide for themselves something different than what you think. I think that's, that's sort of a key element. Yeah. I think part of the reason that I feel like consent education starts to happen as college is because at least where we are now in this conversation, a lot of people conflate consent with just having to do with sex. And so it's like, okay, they're college age, they're away from home for the first time. Right. And so then it's like, well, now we have to teach them about consent so that no one sexually assaults anyone. And it's like, okay, but they've already learned all these other ideas about their bodies and their boundaries and stuff from when they were little. And the story about your daughter shows that interactions that seem innocuous because, you know, it wasn't like a horrific assault on her person. She still had a similar emotional reaction. She was upset and she felt violated, even if it was just like something innocuous that kids and kids do that. And, but I think all of that is really dismissive of the idea that we have to be educating kids about their bodily autonomy and, and their boundaries 
and consent way before it has anything to do with their adult decisions. I think the other thing, which is like an unfortunate thing, is statistically, many kids are sexually assaulted before college. Like when people get into college, like already a significant proportion of people have has experienced some type of sexual assault. And I think a lot of the like sort of grabby, you know, in my junior high, I remember there was like a butt grabbing problem that happened for a while. And those things, because, you know, I'm old, uh, nobody really cared. It was like, yeah, it's fine, you know, like people, whatever, you know. But again, those kinds of things set up dynamics starting in middle school, really, and sometimes earlier where people's bodies are being touched without consent. You know, even when you're looking at sexual harassment in the workplace now, the main thing that they're finding when they look at research is that that lowers the rates is the response of the managers to it when it does happen. And that if you have a really strong cultural reaction to reporting, like when it happens, people are like, that is absolutely no and, you know, sanctions and all the things, the rates drop way down when people are like, yeah, it's not a really big deal. The rates go way up because you can do it. And I think that's, you know, kids knowing that they have the right to their bodies is so important so that so that they don't just dismiss it as being like oh well I guess you know anybody can touch me because that's how it is like they can be like no wait I this is me my body I get to, I get to pick so that's kind of my goal with that yeah and I I think you achieved it I think it's a, a really great book and really important and like Martha and both of you were saying it it's it's very different from other books I think about that subject that came out and I think kids would want to read it um, I feel like the tickle fight one is also one of those things that a lot of people have experienced you know like where even something like that would be so fun the person's laughing and like I've been on the non-consensual end of a of a major tickling younger sister here you know so I think even things like that are just things that a kid would relate to as you know when you feel like your power is taken away it feels bad I maybe think back when I was a kid with the cheek pinching thing because I did have a relative who was a cheek pincher and I would like I would like hide I would like I'm gonna stay in the other room and maybe they won't even know that I'm here and uh <laughs> and then that won't happen but but like they meant well it was like how they felt like being affectionate but it was yeah but it was something that I didn't really like but I also didn't you know have the language to I don't want this to happen to me. I think there are a lot of scenarios in there that kids will be like, yes, you know, this happens in my life and really easy for them to make connections. Yeah. Well, and I think there might be this idea that kids don't like reading about hard stuff, but the opposite is true. And, you know, anybody who, you know, recommends books to kids starts to learn that like kids really do want to read about the hard stuff. They want to know about these things. And a book that's for adults without consent for kids is not something you're going to hand to a kid. Um, and I can imagine people being like, well, I don't need to hand this book to my kid. They're not having trouble. But it's not the sort of book that you need to have a situation before you hand it to them. Kids do want to read about hard stuff. And so something that's about hard stuff but also has a silly side is a really good book to just hand to a kid and say, you like graphic novels? Here's another graphic novel. I mean, you don't even need to say more than that. And then they're getting, you know, the content and it's in a relaxed and fun environment instead of a things have been done wrong and now we have to learn. 
kind of environment. So, Rachel, you said that both of your books for children are nonfiction books. Uh, so I was just curious a little bit, especially for writing books for kids, what your research process is. Honestly, um, the consent book had in some ways less research because I've done so much animation work in this area since T-Consent. So I've worked with many organizations around um, the United States and beyond around doing video around consent. So uh, Futures Without Violence and Thorn and uh, all these kind of different kind of cool groups of people who look at different aspects of consent. So I felt pretty well versed in it by the time I got around to, to doing the book. And then I, I had um, sort of expert readers in sort of sexual violence prevention and domestic violence prevention who were really useful there too and you know gave me some good pointers and things to consider. Um, for the Worry Less book, that was another one where I, I definitely had expert readers who are therapists and work specifically with kids. Um, I also, my eldest child it has a generalized anxiety disorder. So this has also been my life for like 17 years. <laughs> so I was like, here's another one where I have like a little bit of uh, background info on um, how anxiety can both be uh, a tool and also can be an impediment. The Worry Less book does have a lot of strategies for kids. And my experience with my own children is that some kids are really into strategies like, you know, deep breathing and sort of centering. And there's a bunch of different ways to, to do that. And, and some people really are more wired to be anxious and some of those strategies are not super helpful. So there's kind of like the cognitive behavioral stuff that's like, here's stuff you can do and remember this. And then there's also kind of like that acceptance and commitment uh, therapy stuff, which is like, hey, this is a per this is the person I am. I have a lot of anxiety. It's cool. Like I'm gonna be all right, and I'm gonna think about what my goals are and do them anyway. So it's kind of both those are in the book for the you know my middle child is much more like a strategy guy. He likes to do that when he's feeling worried, and um, you know not everybody is. So I think giving kids kind of a toolbox to think about things, but then like the overall goal of that book is just to be like it's actually regular to be worried. Like, especially this year, it's funny, the publisher released the ebook before the hard copy came out because it was the beginning of the pandemic and everyone's super worried. It's a worrying time, even more than regular. And just recognizing that, you know, as far as evolution is concerned, it, it has a purpose. Like worrying is for a reason. It's supposed to help you be able to like make your life better. And sometimes it's a little out of whack and it makes things hard. And, um, you know, just kind of being kind to yourself about that, recognizing that, you know, this is a thing many people struggle with and it's okay and have your support people and do the best you can and to sort of a lot of self-acceptance around that. So it seems like the subjects that you pick for books really real life and your experience with your kids. I mean, one of the fun things about being an animator is like, I get to work on all kinds of stuff and I'm just always fascinated by everything. We also got chickens this year. I could easily write a chicken book and I'd be like, it's amazing, chickens! <laughs> like, I, I would love to see Ali Brosh actually draw a chicken book because her chickens would be the best. But, um, oh my yeah. God, her chickens would be terrifying. <laughs> it turns out chickens are already kind of terrifying. Like they, um, they are little dinosaurs. 
when my cat goes out, um, the chickens chase him all around the yard and like chase him up a tree. Like he tries to stalk them and then they all come at him like a mob of velociraptors. It's really, it's really something. Actually, that my my eldest child who, who has some of that anxiety, he's super into the chickens, and I think animals can op- often be really helpful for for anxiety. Yeah, just seeing a being on this earth that really, you know, is just concerned with its basic survival. I think just they're so in the moment. Like, one of the things that's fun about watching chickens, and I'll just talk about chickens for a minute because that's what everyone wants to hear about, is that when you watch, you bring your chickens out and they, like, scratch and peck, right? They scratch with their legs and then they plunk down and see if there's any good worms or frogs or whatever stuff they want to eat. And they just could not be happier. And it doesn't matter like what else happened that day or they got pecked by the, the big cheese or whatever. Anything could have happened. It's literally the greatest thing that ever happened to them. And it's so fun to watch them, like sitting around watching chickens being happy. It's just everyone should do it. It's like a, it's a great thing. So we end our show with a segment that I call The Last Chapter, where we talk about a bookish or library related question to just give our opinions on it. So this week, I thought I would ask you to, would you rather bring any one character from a book into our world or live in a book's world, but never meet your favorite character? Mm. I feel like that one's really easy for me because I have so many favorite characters. (laughs) So I'd rather go into a book world because maybe I wouldn't meet that one favorite character. But what if I met all my other favorite characters? So... I would be really excited to explore a book world. Which book would you go for? That's a hard question. That's a very hard question. I definitely think it would be not a fantasy world, which is what I think a lot of people would think of originally. Like, ooh, I want to go meet a dragon. Although, now that I'm thinking about it, I would probably want to check out the Dealing with Dragons world, which is a series about a woman who who decides that instead of getting married, she's just going to go and live with a dragon instead of having to get married. And it's about all her adventures, like living with the dragons. And, you know, knights come and try to defeat the dragon. And she's like, no, I'm good, thanks. I don't need to be rescued. So I feel like that whole world was really a lot of fun. Now I want to read that. I'm getting so many good recommendations. Sounds good. It's Patricia Reed. And it's a very 90s type of fantasy series. And it's it's very... um, girl power e and the only the 90s could really do yeah yeah <laughs> i mean it's this is, sounds like egocentric i think i want to be the character in the other world <laughs> i don't want to meet you it would probably be one of those things where it's like awkward we have nothing to say to each other i'm like hey how about chapter five huh <laughs> don't be like a disappointment i want to go like live the life I think that would be cool. I was, I think I might, uh, I think I would want to do like, maybe like My Side of the Mountain. You know, that was like one of my favorite books growing up as a kid. And he goes off and he lives in the woods. I, I love that idea. It's like my childhood fantasy. So I could see that, you know, living in a hollowed out hemlock tree with a falcon for a pet. I mean, come on. What's not to like? I really <laughs> like that point about not wanting to meet the character. It's probably like meeting a celebrity in a restaurant. They're like, I'm not really that character. I'm a human. (laughs) I think I'm going to have to go the opposite because a lot of the books that I enjoy are dystopian. I really like dystopian fiction. So I don't think I would like want to go into these settings because it's like not a good time. Yeah. All right. What's your favorite one though? Because I'm building my list here. 
about this on the show before for another last chapter, but literally the the series that was like my gateway drug into reading was the Uglies series by Scott Westerfield. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it's it's very interesting. It's so it's kind of like fairly distant future where we feel like we've fixed all of the world's problems by giving everyone a surgery when they're 16 to make them pretty of course that surgery and the and the society is more than meets the eye well i have a recommendation for both of you taylor because you love that series and i love that series too i have to make sure that everybody knows about the bells by danielle clayton which is a newer series about beauty. It's a little bit different because it is people getting magically or surgically beautiful, but in this world, there are specific women who have the ability to do this for other people, and they're held up as, like, beautiful and everything that is beauty. Um, But then, of course, that goes wrong, especially when the queen dies and the princess that takes over is very like vain and self-centered and wants to be the most beautiful person in the entire world and will literally like kill anyone around her in order to make sure that that stays that way. So um, it's a very updated version of, I feel like what Scott Westerfeld was starting to comment on when he wrote Uglies. So your list is getting longer. And I'm glad for the recommendation, Martha, because I have seen that series before, but like just saw it on the shelf and was like, is this any good? I don't know. So I'll have to check it out. So before we sign off, Rachel, where can people find you on the internet? Is there any upcoming projects that you would like people to know about and point them towards? And we'll include all of this in the show notes as well. Okay. Um, I am on the internet somewhere. I mean, I have like rachelandbrian.com, but that's sort of, there's really nothing there. Um, I mean, really, uh, most of my stuff is under Blue Seed Studios, but um, obviously books are at the library and other places. And um, I do have another book in the works, a couple little projects, and um, the probably most, uh, the newer one, the one that will come out most recently or most close to now, Brain Not Working, is um, is about friendship. I think with so many of the things that I have looked at, the skill of having a really wonderful friend is, and being a wonderful friend is something that gets people through a lot in, in life and life is tough. And so I think it's something that will both, there's a lot of opportunity for humor again, but also just sort of like really cool ideas about supporting each other. So. All right. So look out for that. Um, yeah. And thank you both for joining me for this wonderful conversation. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, A reminder, if you have any suggestions about the show or you just want to shoot us an email, you can do that at downtime at cransomlibrary.org. And if you're feeling generous, hop over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rate and review so other people can find the show. This was another episode of Downtime. Downtime is a project of the Cranston Public Library and is produced by Zach Berger, Martha Boxenbaum, Robin Nizio, and me, Taylor Cardillo. Audio engineering by Dave Bartos. Our theme music is Day Trips by Ketza, and our ad music is Happy Ukulele by Scott Holmes. Links to the books and movies discussed can be found in the show notes. Remember to rate and review Downtime on Apple Podcasts, 
connect with CPL on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, send an email to downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. Join us next week for more Downtime. Somebody's struggling with an issue of blah blah. <gasps> Page to the librarians!